Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Thinking Commercially, the business and commercial awareness podcast with me, Ben Triggs, and the wonderful Chris Stokes. It is the final episode of this series, and this time we're going to cover reducing the impact of price rises, the striking on the railways, productivity and the UK economy, and then myself and Chris will give some top tips on well-being and getting into the right mindset for your career. All of this and more in this episode. Welcome, Chris, to this episode. How are you doing? I'm very well indeed, Ben. How are you? Yep, really well, thank you. Really looking forward to this episode. We're bang in the middle of summer. It's the longest day I can see. The sun is shining out on my flat roof and um, we're just going to be talking about a little bit of business. Keep it going on social media. So a lot of buzz on our Thinking Commercially LinkedIn and our Instagram. You can follow us and get the inside scoop of what's going on behind the podcast and also some extra insights from me and Chris as well. And also it's a really good place to ask any questions that you have. We've had some members on the on the podcast asking questions, but also anyone that gives comments or thoughts. Those are the things that we're typically covering in each episode. And Chris, actually, we've had a few questions which are a bit more directed to you, and they're all about your books. And I don't think they're about your poetry book. I think they're about your commercial awareness and city books. But Chris, the application season is coming up for many sectors, law, happening at the moment, banking, consulting, maybe in the early autumn. What do your books offer students ahead of the application season? Thank you, Ben. They're they're both called All You Need to Know About, and one is All You Need to Know About Commercial Awareness. That's very much covering the sort of things we cover in this podcast. It really gives you an understanding of business, how business works. Um, It's designed to help you prep for an interview so that... um, when you're asked business-related questions, you you understand the context and you understand the language. And the the other the the other related book, all you need to know about the city, is very much about the financial markets. So if you're particularly thinking of working uh, in uh, professional services, financial services, then I'd recommend that. And to tell you the truth, and I would say this, wouldn't I? Um, I think reading both is useful. Students have told me that they find both useful because. The City book is very much about the finance of business as well as the financial markets, whereas commercial awareness is much more about wider things such as business development, business strategy, and so on. And so I, I think students try one, and having tried it, they try the other, and that gives them a kind of complete overview of business and finance. Yeah, really amazing. I am one of those people, not, not a student or, or graduate anymore well I was a graduate about 10 years ago and but I have read them both and they are both absolutely brilliant and the one thing I find and this is kind of a top tip for you if you are a student or a a recent graduate just about to start in the working world um, a lot of the time um, because these books are, are so good that the employer might give you it and they might buy them and give you it however my top tip is actually to get it it's only about 11 12 pounds or something like that on on amazon but get it beforehand because it will give you all the inside scoop throughout the interviews and also help you get prepared before you start in the working world chris 
Your books are brilliant. We're going to get some brilliant insights on today's podcast. Are you ready to get started? Absolutely. Great stuff. So the first story of this month's episode is all about how we can reduce the impact of price rises. To be honest with you, you would have seen across the board prices arising. There's been lots on fuel, there's been lots on food, but general price rises. And it's called inflation, basically prices going up. And you might have read um, recent headlines that um, we've got the highest rate of inflation for, I think, many decades at the moment, um, with prices rising 9% in the last 12 months. But basically what the government and what everyone is trying to do is to work out how we can reduce that inflationary figure. Chris, before we get started on that, and hopefully we can solve some problems on this podcast, but what is inflation being caused by at the moment? Well, the first thing to say is that I think inflation, the rate of inflation has taken everybody by surprise because uh, I'm old enough to remember the inflationary decades of the 1970s and 1980s. But frankly, very few people these days are. And I think people have been taken by surprise by the onset of inflation and by the speed with which it's taken hold. And in this case, what's caused it is is unusual because usually inflation occurs within an economy when people have got a lot of money, they spend it, and that... uh, demand swamps supply, so prices go up. But here, what's caused it, it's a kind of perfect storm of unexpected circumstantial coincidences. So um, the world has been emerging from the pandemic, and we know that there have been supply chain bottlenecks. And then on top of that, there's the war in Ukraine. And it just so happens that the two countries involved are sources of energy and food on a global level. And then also we've got um, a a further trend, which is the geopolitical tensions uh, arising, especially between the US and China. Uh, And the effect of that is to roll back the, the decades of globalization that we've had. And the point about globalization is it means that things are made and produced most cheaply uh, in those countries that can produce them most cheaply. And the world as a whole benefits from that. When globalization starts to roll back, uh, everything becomes more expensive. And so what we're beset by at the moment is just this confluence of different factors, which is what makes it feel a little bit scary. Yeah, one, 100%. And one thing I did want to to pick up, and we've all seen the awful images of of what's happening in in Ukraine over the last 120 days now, I think it's been three or four or, or so months since the since the war started. But on the on the economic level, obviously a lot of countries have um, completely binned off, have got rid of uh, their dependency or trying to get rid of their dependency on uh, on Russian oil. But that's not all countries. And the problem is, is that because there's less supply going into, into the market at the moment, that means the oil price has gone up. So where Russia can sell oil to other countries, if those countries uh, potentially are still willing to buy Russian oil or are so dependent that they need to buy um, Russian oil, actually, um, Russia are making quite a lot of money from it because the, the, the cost of Brent crude 
has gone up 20, 30% since the start of the conflict. So there's a lot of um, talk about how to kind of solve that problem. Obviously, all of these sanctions have been put in place to try and prevent Russia getting money to fund the war. Um, but in some ways, actually, um, it's not working quite as we expected. And governments around the world need to continue to work together to ensure that sanctions are most effective as well. However, Chris, I didn't want to dwell on that point, but I thought it was quite an interesting one for, for, for the listeners and something that is very pertinent to, to what's going on in the world at the moment. But back to inflation, what I wanted to ask was how the job market ties into this. Because I'm hearing talk of this spiral. So as inflation bites, things get more expensive. Workers want more money to be able to afford to, to, to live or maintain their quality of life. Um, and at the same time, companies are struggling to hire. So they have to pay extra to, uh, to, to, to get the hires that they want. How is this all linked? And is this causing a problem? Well, at, at its most basic, high unemployment is a forward indicator of inflation because if the job market is very tight, if it's hard to fill vacancies, it means that businesses are looking uh, to recruit and they're having to offer higher wages to people to encourage them to join. So uh, a tightening labour market is itself an indicator of inflation. But the weird thing about inflation is that it's fear of inflation that stokes inflation. And uh, I'm sure you would have heard of the wage price spiral, which is basically uh, if people think that prices are going to go up, they want to be paid more. And uh, in order to pay them more, businesses have to increase prices. So one feeds on the other, which is why there's been... um, Uh, quite a lot of of rhetoric from the government recently about uh, ensuring that we don't get into this spiral, trying to control inflation expectations, because as soon as everybody expects inflation, that causes it. Amazing. And now getting to maybe our problem solving, a little bit like the John um, Lennon quote, there are no problems, only only solutions, so to speak. And maybe we're not going to solve everything um, on this on this podcast, but really good to, to get a bit of thought about what's going on in terms of trying to reduce the impact of inflation. The one thing that happened recently was that the UK interest rates were risen by the Bank of England to 1.2%. Could you give a bit of comment on that, Chris, what it's trying to achieve, but also other ways that the government and also as a society business can um, support reducing the impact of this inflation? Well, if the cause of inflation was simply within the UK, a very good instrument to control that is raising interest rates, because uh, if you raise interest rates, it increases the cost of borrowing. So people borrow less, they spend less. And it also encourages people to save because they get a higher return on on their deposits at the bank. But the problem with increasing interest rates is that it also makes the cost of borrowing more expensive for business and it discourages business from borrowing to invest. So generally speaking, when inflation is caused within an economy, you raise interest rates because the economy is overheating. It's doing really well, but you need to dampen down a demand, which in turn is causing prices to go up. We are not actually in that position at the moment. 
a lot of the inflationary pressure is coming from outside the UK. So although the Bank of England is raising interest rates, it's in an overall context of the economy flatlining. And if the economy is not growing very strongly and you increase interest rates, the effect can be to drive an economy into recession. And the thing that economists fear the most is stagflation. So you've got a stagnant economy which isn't growing, and on top of that, you've got inflation. And so the Bank of England is really torn between two competing pressures. Raise interest rates to control inflation. Don't raise interest rates so that you can encourage the economy. And it's caught completely between those conflicting demands. Yeah, really interesting points, Chris. Thank you very much for those. We spoke about this a few times in this series. It's not a brand new topic, but it's so important, so big to to get right. And I think understanding the fundamentals of businesses is so, so crucial in the world uh, around where businesses that you'll be interviewing for are uh, operating in. When I spoke to you about three months ago, we both agreed that this is looks like it will be a bit more of a short-term shock. There was lots of different um, factors, especially uh, coming out of the pandemic and as you talked about earlier, um, the difficulty shipping goods around around the world. However, it feels like there's a bit of a shift in the commentators' attitudes towards it. And possibly we're looking at a longer-term problem. What's your views on it, Chris, now? Uh, I'm, I'm still um, optimistic that inflation will start to come down. I mean, inflation, I, I, I can remember days when inflation was running at 18%, which is massive. Inflation is now running at 10 or 11%. But economists generally think that it will come down over the next 18 months to a level of 2 to 4%, which is much more controllable. The Bank of England's job is to keep inflation at about 2%. But it goes back to expectations because as our expectations of inflation become baked into the system, so inflation will continue and will continue to accelerate. One of the things that economists are saying, which is really quite interesting, is that one of the things that will stop inflation is inflation. And what they mean by that is since a lot of the factors are outside the UK economy and they're causing things like energy to go up in price, As we spend more of our disposable income on energy and on food, it means we can't spend it on other things. And by not being able to spend it on other things, that has a deflationary aspect on those other parts of the economy. So it may well be that inflation burns itself out, as it were, and things return to to more of a normal. And of course, bringing this back to the businesses that you may be Um, looking to apply in. Obviously, if you're going for companies like consumer goods, FMCG, fast moving consumer goods, obviously, it's going to have an impact because price is rising, prices people have to market for the more expensive goods, people will start going for the more basic ranges, people have less money to, to, to splash out on food shops or on luxury goods, depending on where you go. But even when you think about the professional services, the financial services, and across the board, high inflation leads to a bit of a lack of confidence, worries about the global economy, whether we're heading into recession, and people stop spending money. They stop investing in stocks and shares, possibly going for more safe haven opportunities. So it will have that wider impact. It's important to know 
when going into interviews, what this climate looks like around the interview that you're having around the business that you're going into. I hope that makes a lot of sense, but we're going to leave it there. Chris, you're sitting there in uh, in Buckinghamshire, somewhere in your in your house at the moment, and I'm here in Ballam in my uh, flat uh, in southwest London. And part of the reason we are both in these areas today is because there is a train strike. Often I would be in Bright Network's Liverpool Street office. Chris sometimes joins me as well. Sometimes we do do it virtually, but has joined me in the past to do in person recordings but that definitely wasn't going to happen today because as you will be almost certainly aware there's been big strikes not just today on the day of recording but also for the rest of the week and possibly looking for the rest of the summer plus there were a few a few weeks ago as well so if you haven't seen this which i'm sure you would have done um the rmt which is the national union of rail maritime and transport workers are on a full strike. I think one of the biggest they've had in a number of decades, and it's caused a lot of commotion and a lot of pain for people trying to travel around the UK and beyond. There's a lot happening uh, with this at the moment. And actually, um, there were a few headlines a couple of days ago suggesting that possibly nurses and other members of the um, public sector might be joining these strikes as it rattles on throughout the summer. Chris, I want to start with why now for the strikes? I must admit, I was I was taken aback by this. Um, I suppose I was thinking that post-pandemic, as we emerged from, from that, there was a sense that, you know, we're all in this together. So I've been surprised at how quickly this sort of industrial action has, has come about and I, I think there are various reasons for it. Um, one is that post-pandemic, there was a much greater expectation that government will step in to help us uh, live more easily. So in the pandemic, the furlough scheme, then with energy prices going up, the government prepared to hand out cash to um, those uh, parts of the population that could afford the increases the least. And so I think that expectation that government should step in has increased over time. I'm not at all political and these podcasts aren't political, but uh, I think partly it's a reflection of the way the government itself has not been terribly good at signalling that we're all in this together. So there's all of that. But I think putting it in a commercial awareness context, what's really interesting is that when unions uh, feel most aggrieved, it is looking at things historically because there is a fundamental change in their particular industry. So I can remember when um, uh, shipbuilding in this country was under enormous pressure um, from uh, shipbuilders in Korea and the unions, the shipbuilding unions were absolutely up in arms uh, and then following that, the mine workers, when their own industry was under threat of modernization. And I think that you can see that from the RMT's point of view, traffic has not returned to pre-pandemic levels. It's about a fifth down. 
uh, people are coping with the strike itself much more easily than they might have done in the past because they've got workarounds like like Zoom. And of course, a union like the RMT is, is concerned that if the underlying industry changes, if there is less demand uh, for rail travel, then that's going to have a direct impact on uh, the jobs that exist in the industry and how much uh, those people will be paid. Yeah, absolutely. There's actually been some research done um, by some very clever economists that say the three strikes on this week of the week that we're recording, which are on Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday, uh, are likely to cost the UK economy at least 91 million and likely more than 100 million. It feels like a really bad time for the UK economy to be impacted in this way. Do you feel that the unions are maybe jumping on the bandwagon a bit in the, with this knowledge? That's a very interesting question because, um, in a sense, the fact that it's just the wrong time for a strike to happen is exactly why a union would strike at that particular time to have greatest impact. Because from the union's point of view, what they want is a quick resolution. They want their demands met, but they want them met uh, speedily because in the meantime, their own members are suffering because they're not earning what they would what they would otherwise earn. So, yes, on the one hand, well, I can say this is a particularly bad time to choose, but from a union's point of view, that makes it the best time to choose. And, and also what tends to happen is that initially people are very angry with the union, but very quickly that uh, basically translates into anger against the government for not stepping in and sorting it out. And that, that transition in terms of anger against the union, then becoming anger with the government, that happens really quite rapidly. It's quite interesting on, on that point. And we are delving slightly into politics now, um, unfortunately, but um, do humour me with, with this one, is that there's been a lot of rhetoric from the government of today, from Grant Chaps, who's the transport minister, um, trying to shift the focus, not just on the R- back to the RMT, but also onto the Labour Party that have much more of an affinity with the, with the unions that were created out of out of kind of uh, those those sort of workers' unions. Um, so, yeah, it's a really interesting point to, to make, Chris, and do look at that kind of rhetoric piece because I think it is quite interesting. One other thing that I found um, quite interesting in this is that the law as it stands means that the companies that have striking workers can't bring in temporary resource to cover the strikers and keep, let's say, some of the service running. However, the government have announced quite recently that they want to change the law to allow this. How do you feel about that? Well, uh, it's interesting. Going back to the point that you were making about um, how uh, rhetoric is being used uh, for political purposes, two things I'd say. First is unions are not a bad thing. Unions are a good thing. Uh, Unions came about at a time when uh, employers had enormous power and employees were very poorly paid, um, and unions came about to represent them collectively. And behind the scenes, unions do a lot of other things. For example, they're they're very um, uh, emphatic about health and safety at work and working conditions. These things are are really important. And so uh, it's very easy to castigate unions when actually the principle of unions is itself, I, I think, perfectly worthy. The, the other thing is that 
there has over the last 20 years or so, and we've talked about this before, been increasing polarity of wealth. The rich have been getting richer and they've been becoming uh, uh, an even smaller minority. The poor have becoming poorer and there are many more people who are now poor. And so from an optical point of view, it doesn't look very good if at the point at which uh, a major union is uh, striking nationally, the government, for instance, announces that it's going to relax uh, ceilings on bankers' bonuses. It just doesn't look right, which goes back to what I was saying earlier about this idea of uh, the government not signalling that we're all in this together. Whatever you're doing, um, whether you're going into an interview, whether you're delivering a marketing message, which uh, I typically do, or you're trying to sell yourself, thinking about that real clarity of messaging. And what you can see and actually what you can learn from politics is that whether it's um, the Vote Brexit campaign, whether it's um, Boris Johnson's mayoral or um, prime minister um, election campaigns, or even over the pandemic, the slogans were short. They weren't going for long sentences. They were going for three or four word little slogans that people can remember and maybe series of them. And I think when it comes to comms, and ultimately that's where um, I specialize in, it's really thinking about how you can put together a message in as fewer words as possible. The person to, I would really look at, there's a module on the Bright Network Academy. There's a guy called John Trimbos. Um, Chris, I think you know John. You've met him a I couple do. of times. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he is absolutely brilliant at um, helping you cut down the amount of, of words you use and get a message um, across really well. And as I say, we're talking maybe getting into the political side of things. You're thinking this is a business podcast, but there's so much you can learn from whether it's a campaign, whether it's politics, what they're doing to improve your comms as well. And that will be so, so helpful for interviews. Um, the other thing that might be quite interesting is that a lot of people will be potentially thinking about applying to Amazon or Apple or other sort of tech companies. And there is actually quite a link with unions there, because I think we associate often um, unionized workforces with the public sector. Um, but that isn't always the case. And actually, um, there's been a number of votes across Amazon. And the first one happened in Maryland for Apple as well. They voted for um, a union. But it is happening in, in private business, especially American led private businesses. Um, what's going on there, Chris? Well, again, I, I go back to what I said earlier, that unions in principle are a good thing and uh, mm. employees should have collective representation. It, it's very interesting what's happening at Amazon in particular, because the move to unionization is on Amazon's retail side, the e-commerce side. And that's the part of Amazon that is not making money. The part of Amazon that is making money is Amazon Web Services, AWS. And so just putting this in the historical context, as we were saying earlier, that unions tend to um, agitate, particularly when they feel their members are under greatest threat. I don't think it's coincidental that those who work in uh, Amazon's uh, retail side are looking for union representation at a time when it looks as if that business is uh, uh, increasingly under threat. Yeah, really interesting um, stuff there, Chris. And I think um, if you're looking to go into operations or HR, there's huge amount of roles at Amazon, Apple and uh, lots of other businesses. Um, understanding um, how unions work, 
um, but also the business implications of uh, worker welfare and um, how to support staff, um, especially those that maybe aren't on the the big bucks like the the banker bonuses that we 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 talked about talked about earlier is going to be so so important. So a really interesting story. I think that goes across sectors, but um, specifically if you're if you're looking to go into something like that. So the third story for this month's episode is all about the UK and potentially the outlook for the UK economy and also tying into something called productivity. And I think as students or graduates, you'll know a lot about um, productivity, possibly a little bit about procrastination um, as well. Obviously, trying to be as productive as as possible to, to get your essays done and your revision done for your finals, especially if you've had finals now, I'm sure that um, maybe a few of you would suggest that maybe you weren't the most productive when you were meant to be revising, especially when the sun was shining. But looking a bit wider, a lot of what is being talked about at the moment with the UK economy is that our productivity isn't as strong and it's falling behind the other G7 countries and hence why it's looking like we are going to not grow as much and actually have a year of stagnant growth, so 0% um, growth next year. So Chris, when it says the UK is not being as productive as it should be, are we doing maybe what some students are and not working quite as hard as we should be? And of course, listeners of this episode, I'm sure you are working hard enough. Maybe other students aren't. Um, but or, or does this mean something else when it comes to the economy? It's, it's a very good question. And uh, uh, I know you and I are very aware that, that so far what we've been talking about is quite gloomy. And this on the face of it might seem quite gloomy because uh, productivity, not only in the UK, but in the developed world, has been flatlining for some time. And, and again, sorry to sound like the boring old historian, but if you go back to um, just after the Second World War, there, there was enormous productivity growth across the world from about the early 50s through the 70s. And part of that was uh, uh, technological, the technological industrial revolution. But over the last 20 years, that increase in productivity has, has tailed off. Um, and what it essentially means is that our expectations are not supported by the amount that we produce. So in, in an economy like the UK, we've got very high expectations of how we should be able to live and what sort of services we should be able to call upon. But all of that has to be paid for. And if we're not producing enough by way of goods or services that people want to buy, especially outside the UK, to support our expectations, if our productivity is declining, then sooner or later, uh, our way of life will be unsupportable and we will all get poorer. That's, that's, if you like, the bad news. But one of the things that I've been wanting to say as we talked about the previous stories was it's really easy, and this is where Chris the optimist comes in, it's really easy when you're in the middle of these things to think that it's the end of the world, but it never is the end of the world. Things always get better. And the very fact that we're aware of our lack of productivity is itself the first step in the right direction. 
are we aware of our lack of productivity though chris i know that the people talk about it in terms of yes there is a productivity problem but that hasn't shifted the dial in the last few years and actually there's always stats out there there's always suggestion that actually we are more productive and one of those being that the fact that we've got extremely low unemployment well that, that's right the fact that we've got uh, low unemployment means that you know the bulk of of the possible workforce is is in work which is good people want to work um, but how you create a a growth economy is actually very very complicated and uh, at its if you like most philosophical it depends on things like education, for example, uh, do we as a country provide the right level of education to enable those who are listening to this podcast to step into roles at work and be immediately productive? Are businesses investing enough capital in technological innovation to ensure that what each person produces in the business increases without them having to put in more effort. So the, these, these are quasi-philosophical things. But the reason why I'm optimistic is if you actually look at what we in this country are good at, uh, we're good at a lot of things. I mean, for example, um, it's, it's quite common to hear people say that we don't manufacture anymore. And that's just untrue. We are very good at high-precision manufacturing. We've got a global reputation for that and for engineering. Our financial and professional services are world-leading. Even things that might not seem that important, but which are themselves sources of enormous income, media, film, art, sport. Um, we're very good at for example, education. Uh, a lot of postgraduate students come to our universities. We're very good at science. So the thing is, we've got a lot of things that people outside the UK want to buy from us. But I think we've just got to be more focused in making sure that we're producing more of these things that those people will want to buy. Yeah, I completely agree, Chris. And if you are at home ever in doubt that we are not uh, good at high precision or high-end engineering, you should uh, look online at the um, McLaren offices. So we've sort of identified that we have a productivity problem. You started to suggest ways that we could be more focused and therefore um, being more productive. But are there any other ways that we could boost productivity? And also, we're talking to sort of the young generation of people that are coming into into the working world, what impact can they have on boosting the UK economy and productivity? I think it's a matter of, uh, it's the old cliche of working smarter. It's about just improving the efficiency with which we do things, which is why this ties back into uh, the, the story about the unions and about modernizing industry. Um, and how it translates to listeners to the podcast is, don't do this as soon as you get into the workplace because you'll make yourself unpopular, but observe how things are done around you and learn from how they're done so that when you are yourself in a position of, of management, and you will be very quickly, um, you know, two or three years time, uh, you'll be more senior in the organization. There'll be others uh, that, that you're delegating work to. See the ways in which you can improve upon uh, what is already done 
Uh, and that is the, a way in which you can yourself start to improve the nature of the business around you. So it's never accepting the status quo, but always looking for ways to improve efficiency. Because one of the things that often happens when we're in an environment where there are a lot of strikes is that this idea of efficiency or innovation somehow becomes downtrodden as if it's not a good thing. But actually, innovation and efficiency are very good things because they improve the nature of the work that we have, and they actually make work more available for more people. So I think innovation is absolutely at the heart of it. And Ben, it's very interesting you talked about McLaren because uh, there are more uh, Formula One racing teams based in the UK than anywhere else. And that's because of our engineering capabilities. Uh, yeah, really, really good um, point, Chris. And I think on that point around, I guess, innovation or modernization or spotting efficiencies, it's a really good way to start thinking about the businesses, the roles that you could go into, because ultimately all these companies are looking for people to modernize their practices. There's going through massive transitions. If they're not like a tech scale up business or a, a fast growing tech business, of course, they're going to be innovative through their core. But a lot of these legacy businesses, these older school businesses, the kind of names that you will know, are looking for that modernization. So they're looking for those problem solvers, those in innovators to come into their businesses. And if you can really highlight that and show that through the interviews, not only will you in the future be supporting the UK productivity, but you will also put yourself in really good stead when it comes to them making their decisions on who they're going to hire, because ultimately they're looking for potential and you've got the potential to be a great problem solver and an innovator in a couple of years' time. All of a sudden, you put yourself to number one in their hiring list. Right, it is the last episode of this series and we go for a bit more of a light-hearted or, or fun story um each each month um this one actually is very very important but i think it's a really nice way to end the series off in style and give you a few top tips as you head into the summer so what we're going to talk about we're going to give a few top tips talking about keeping your well-being when you enter the working world. We understand that a lot of people are students, fresh grads who uh, may have not started in the working world. So it's important to look to the, the, the future, but also there'll be a lot of people potentially working in different sectors, working very hard in early in your, your career. But I think um, hopefully we've got um, a bit of hindsight. Um, Chris has worked across many different sectors. I've worked um, in kind of fast paced businesses um, and there's definitely things that we have learned, not just on a sort of very classic business commercial awareness side, but also on making sure that you can bring your best self to work and that actually there are a few pitfalls that you can only really learn from people that have been there and done it. Chris, I tasked you with um, one tip um, for our listeners um, because you give so much to this podcast. I think you've come up with three um, so what are your top tips um, for people starting their career to keep themselves sound, um, strong and uh, in, in a good space? So my, my first uh, tip is, um, and this may seem counterintuitive because here you are, you know, you're very successful ending your, your education, 
you've you've done really well so far. You want to make sure you do really well in the workplace. So you're 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 going to be quite stressed. And my tip is, and this may not seem like very helpful advice, but an awful lot of what happens in the workplace is down to luck. You know, it is true that you can make your own luck, but a lot of it's down to luck. So my first tip is don't overplan. Um, don't 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 think about where's my career going to be in three years' time, five years' time, seven years' time. Just just roll with it. And if you roll with it, good things will happen. So uh, a lot of it is down to luck. Uh, and generally, uh, the luck will fall out in your favor. Uh, so don't, don't overstress and don't overplan. My second tip uh, is, uh, and it, it, it's associated with that, if you find you don't like what you're doing, change it. It's not the end of the world. And I believe this much more now than when I was starting out. When I was starting out, you embarked on a career and you just stuck with it. And if you didn't like it, you lumped it. Nowadays, I think you should spend your 20s exploring what it is you want to do. Um, You've got plenty of time in which to settle down into whatever uh, walk of life it is uh, you're going to do uh, into your 30s and 40s. So if you find you don't like something, even if it's something that you've been working towards for a long time, then then change it. And my my third tip is um, people really matter. When you're first in the workplace, you regard everybody else as a competitor, naturally. But funny enough, uh, people of your age doing your sort of job, they are your natural friends because you're all doing the same sort of thing. And I have found in in my life that uh, trusting people, making friends with people who would on the face of it be competitors, it's always worked out well in the end. And I've made a lot of really good friends through people that I've worked with. So uh, my third tip is people matter more than anything else. Yeah, those are really three fantastic tips um, for to end this series. And I've got one um, for myself. And actually, me and Chris uh, um, got chatting about this um, a few weeks ago on this. But my top tip is all about maintaining your hobbies and don't become one dimensional. I think it is quite easy, especially in London. And it might be the case for other cities. I've mainly experienced London as a in, in the working world is that you end up working and then maybe going for for drinks or doing something like that. But it all revolves around work or or drinking or or doing things like that. And what I found myself over the last sort of seven or eight years, I played a lot of sport when I was younger um, and that sort of dwindled a little bit. And ultimately, my hobby was pub and doing working probably a bit too hard. So what I would say is that maintain some hobbies and be passionate about those hobbies um, as well and keep them going. Ultimately, there's going to be times where you do work hard. Um, and of course, you've sometimes got to make priority calls. That's part of life. Um, but as I say, make sure you carve out that time for those those hobbies. And it actually helps you in the working world. People love um, people that are interested by things. And um, to give you an example, I actually get, quit drinking um, about six or seven months ago and uh, found myself with a a lot more time on my hands because I wasn't going out till two in the morning and being spending my Saturdays hungover. So um, I've got into um, gardening a little bit more than I used to and uh, actually um, have uh, set up a a little Instagram account called uh, at flowerpot.ben 
um, where you can follow me. You can grab your phone now. I'm sure you're on your phone. You can give me a follow. And um, it's very good for well-being as well because it's lots of uh, floral shots and uh, everything um, like that. Um, but I think it's something like that where you just need to have it. You've got something which makes you a little bit unique. You're exploring your hobbies. You don't care what other people think. If other people are, are doing certain lifestyles, you need to find the lifestyle um, that's right for you. And Chris, I know you had a, a few comments on gardening, Chris, not so much from a passionate gardener yourself. I don't actually believe you you, you have a garden, um, but actually in terms of a really good case study for commercial awareness of a really expanding industry that's utilized maybe modern technology um, and really started appealing to people like me, millennials, or even um, Gen Z. Absolutely. Well, I mean, uh, the whole horticultural sector um, is another one of our great exports because Mm. um, we're really good at growing stuff in this country. And horticulture is a very big industry. Um, The the rise of the garden centre over the last 20 or 30 Mm. years, garden centres are now places that people go to to have a cup of coffee. You know, they don't necessarily go there just to buy plants. It's a, it's a, it's a day out. Usually they've got child-friendly uh, areas. They've got swings and things that small children can play on. And so they are a place that people will go to. Um, and uh, one of my university acquaintances actually built a business importing and exporting uh, uh, highly sought after specialist plants. So that's just an example of a way in which something that you can be passionate about can, can actually, you know, become something that, that that you do. And just just to to just Ben to to um, echo your your story. Um, I knew a lawyer who was a very good blues guitarist. This is going back mm. decades when when uh, lawyers weren't supposed to play electric guitar. And um, the firm he was with uh, wanted him to go out and do some business development. And he said it was really awkward because he thought that you should spend your time talking to clients about things like opera. You know, you couldn't talk to them about blues guitar until uh, a client discovered that he was a blues guitarist and asked him if he could teach him a solo from a particular song. And um, my mate said, yes, well, of course. And, And he did. And he got a client for life. And he realized after that, that you didn't just have to talk to clients about opera. You could actually talk to them about blues guitar as well. That's, uh, that's really exciting. And as I say, on the back to the kind of plants, plant side of things, I think um, there was a stat that came out the, uh, the other day, which I was reading that seven in 10 millennials call themselves a plant parent. Um, and what I find really interesting about that is that over the, over the pandemic, millions of um, Brits uh, got into into gardening, and I think there was some research suggesting that almost three million um, sort of started it, and of which um, half of which were under the age of forty five. So not just I think some people suggest that gardening is something that you do when you maybe retire, but more and more people uh, are getting into it um, earlier on in their their life, which is really wholesome and really a good way of doing it. I've definitely seen seen the benefits of it. Um, but what I've seen really interesting and a really good business case study is Patch Plants. They have really bought in to this idea of kind of home improvement, which everyone's been focusing on during the pandemic and uh, after the pandemic um, as well. But they've been innovative in appealing to the new market, knowing stats like that, you know, millennials are calling themselves plant parents. They've actually named 
their uh, their plants. So you can buy um, these plants which have fairly complex sort of um, names for them usually. Um, but then also they have a little kind of, you know, uh, name given to them, which, uh, which, as I say, if people are calling themselves plant parents, typically uh, they want to name stuff um, like their, their house plants. And I think also tying into ideas about having like unkillable ranges or, or ranges of things that can really improve your, your house and tying into, into the market, knowing that millennials may be a much more time poor than possibly people that were into gardening 20, 30 years ago who might have all the time in, in the world. Um, they've really created a niche for themselves and tapped into a really good market. And I think that's really important um, when looking at business and seeing how they're doing things, how they're innovating, both with their product, but also um, how they're going to market as well. And that's my fourth top tip. Don't overwater your houseplants. Absolutely. Um, I found um, to to my own detriment that sometimes uh, if you're too into it and watering a bit much, it, it can go um, slightly wrong but however as you will see on instagram it doesn't always go wrong there's some lovely uh, top tips um there if you want to give us a follow on flowerpot.net chris i think that's everything from this story from this series um i can't believe we've made it to two series how are you feeling about it I, i'm just wondering whether if i grow herbs on my kitchen windowsill does that does that mean that i'm a plant parent i i think so i think i better so. give them names you you should give them names. I think I think that's what will make make you uh, love them. You should talk to them as as well. Everyone knows that if you talk to a house plant, they're they're more likely to grow big and strong. Um, but Chris, beyond plants, have you enjoyed um, doing this series? Are you? I'm slightly amazed that we've got to 18 episodes and people are, are still tuning in. I, well, I, I'm particularly amazed about the latter. I mean, uh, mm. it's been absolutely wonderful. I've I've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed working with you, Ben. And uh, if there is anybody still listening out there, then then I'm even more surprised. Great stuff. Absolutely. Well, yeah, really do appreciate you listening. We're doing it for you. We don't make any any money out of this. We're just uh, purely doing it to promote plant-based uh, Instagram channels and uh, give you really good insights, and largely because we, we enjoy it. It's a passion project. We talked a little bit about um, passion in this episode. But please do um, go on to Spotify, Apple, wherever you're getting your podcast. Do give us a, a nice review. Do give us a comment if you have enjoyed the second series if you're getting lots out of it and obviously of course be in touch over the summer on instagram and linkedin we will be back for series three come september and we're going to start with an application special because of course in early to mid september a lot of students a lot of graduates will be applying for roles so we will see you in september chris um thank you so much for for doing it and uh best of luck everyone over the summer thank you very much everyone What a wonderful way to end this series. I hope you've loved this series. Hope you've got loads of insights ready for applications coming up or when you're in the working world. Don't worry, we'll be back in September. Looking forward to seeing you then.